So this evening we want to look at Lord's Day 24, and we will first give our attention to the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 2. So we'll invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at the first ten verses under the heading of, What About Good Works? What About Good Works? From Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes to us in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the, tres- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here ends the reading of God's Word. And then we'll invite you to turn in the Heidelberg Catechism, our Forms and Prayers book, our Forms and Prayers, to page number 225. Page 225 in the Forms and Prayers. to Lord's Day 24. Question 62. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. Question 63 on the next page. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. Question 64. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Blessed congregation, I remember once on a brave day Back up in Canada, a friend and my a friend and myself decided to go door to door to people's homes seeking to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Some were friendly 
and others not so much. But we were able to strike up a few conversations and also make some new friends. And one family whose home I knocked on that door that faithful day, I would often walk by and see them on their porch and they would invite me over for a conversation. And as the conversation naturally turned to the subject of religion, and I would speak to them about their need for the Gospel, their need for the Lord Jesus Christ, their answer was always the same, and their answer was always firm. We are good people. We're going to heaven because we are good people. And this has been my experience, whether in Canada and or in the United States, whether speaking to someone young or old, or whether speaking to someone who is a male or a female. It is our tendency as humans to point to our good works, the good things we do in this life, as to why we are deserving of heaven. In fact, Joel Beakey says, and I think he's right, that this is the oldest religion in the world. Trying to earn your way to heaven. If you go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell in paradise, they were already trying to sew, sew the fig leaves together. To cover their sin before God. Or the Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower all the way to heaven. We'll get to heaven on our, on our own terms. And it's still true today. For our Muslim friends, Islam requires a strict adherence to the law as a means of reaching heaven. In Hinduism, salvation is granted when a worshiper is freed from the cycle of reincarnation by their own good works. Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, Mormonisms teach a strict adherence to their church as the means of getting to heaven. Even Roman Catholics teach that there needs to be an infusion of grace and you need to remain in that state of grace by your own free will in order to get to heaven. Mankind has always tried to reach heaven by his own strength and by our own power. Which is why it's so profound what we read this morning from Romans 4. In Lord's Day 23, that the Bible teaches that salvation is free. That you can go to heaven by free grace in Jesus Christ. That by faith, as the instrument which grabs hold to Jesus, you can have His righteousness, you can have salvation, you can have heaven completely free this evening. It's free. Apart from works. But does this now mean that we can live however we want? This is the natural second question to the freeness of the Gospel. How then shall we live? 
what Paul is going to teach us in Ephesians 2 is that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We are saved to serve the Lord. That we're given a holy purpose in this life. To serve the Lord here on earth. That's our theme for our time together this evening. Christians are saved apart from, but not without, good works. Christians are saved apart from, but not without good works. I want to show you this in three points this evening. Why good works cannot save. Why good works are rewarded. And why good works do not make us careless. Why good works cannot save, why good works are rewarded, and why good works do not make us careless. We begin with question 62 where the instructor asks, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? But the first thing I want to draw your attention to in question 62 is that the author points out that there is good things in this world. There are things worthy of our celebration as Christians, even if they're done by people who are not Christians. Unbelievers can create art in this world that is utterly astounding. There is giftedness in athletics that can make you say, this is incredible. Wow. Even more recently in our lives, maybe more close to home for some of us, there have been incredible discoveries in the medical fields. Incredible discoveries in agriculture. And most importantly, I think, how our hearts are so moved when somebody is willing to sacrifice themselves for another. As people made in the image of God, we can do amazing things in this world. And this was true for the Ephesians as well. Ephesus, even back then, was one of the great cities of Asia Minor. It was known as a free, democratic city in Rome. Most famous for having one of the ancient wonders of the world, the temple dedicated to Diana. They were by and large known to be as a cultured, successful, and celebrated people. But when Paul's evaluating the human condition, look at what he says at the The first two words of Ephesians 2. And you. Who is he talking to? Look at verse 3 with me. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Who is he talking to? He's talking to everyone. And he says, every single person in their natural human condition 
is in trespasses and in sin. Transgressions, excuse me. Trespasses, yes, and sins. Now these two words put together actually describe something very important. Sin, boys and girls who are here this evening, can literally be translated as missing the mark. Think of an archer who takes the bow and lets go of the string. And his aim is wide. That's an illustration of sin. Trespasses means to slip and to fall away. When Paul says trespasses and sins, he's describing not the worst of things. He's describing that everybody is missing the mark. Because we were all created in the image of God. All created to serve Him, but we're missing what He's calling us to. Called to holiness, but we're slipping off the path. And so He uses three illustrations to describe our human condition. And they're quite shocking. He uses the illustration of death. He uses the illustration of disobedience. And he uses the illustration of doom. Look at the first one. He uses death to illustrate our natural condition. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the Apostle's diagnosis of our human nature apart from Christ. That man isn't just sick. Man surely isn't well, but man is dead. And now obviously everyone here in this room has a pulse, but he's referring to the Adamic promise of the curse. That if as surely as they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. But in Genesis 2, when they took that fruit and ate it, They didn't drop dead immediately. But it's referring to spiritual death. That they were now unable to follow God, unable to serve God, unable to obey Him. Paul says that's what we're like. Just like a corpse is unable to move. Dead men can't make choices. Dead men can't do good things. That's what Adam and Eve were like, spiritually speaking. Paul says we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us, says John Calvin, are born dead. All of us live as dead men and women. All of us are unable to make good choices. The second illustration he gives is of disobedience. Now being spiritually dead does not mean that you're inactive. In fact, the next two verses in verses 2 and 3 are full of verbs. Look at these verses with me if you will. In which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body. These are very strong words here. Very active words here. But they're actions that are contrary to the Lord. Boys and girls who are here this evening, you know that sometimes you're around somebody who is doing something naughty and you do it too because you're with them? And then your mom or your dad says to you, why did you do that thing? And you say, well, I was just following so-and-so. The Apostle Paul says, when spiritually dead people live in a spiritually dead world, we follow the crowd. He says, we follow the world. That we receive our values. We get our habits, our lifestyles, the way we live from this dead world. He says we follow the prince of the power of the air. That the one who rules and governs this world, Satan himself, is actually the one whom we're following. And we follow our own sinful desires. Three things we're following. The world, the prince of the power of the air, and we follow our own sinful desires. Elsewhere, the Bible says our great enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our natural human condition is that we're given over to our enemies. So Paul says, to put it provocatively, we're doomed. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind that our natural condition apart from Jesus Christ is that we are dead disobedient and doomed now I wonder this evening how this would have went over in Ephesus you Ephesians who have built this free and democratic city you're dead you who have built the greatest temple in the ancient world that will be remembered for thousands of years. You're disobedient. You who have built thriving trades and social programs, whatever it be, you're doomed. What Paul is saying to one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor is that it doesn't matter if you're a great person. It doesn't matter if you have some of the greatest achievements in the greatest of places, they still don't meet the divine standard. In fact, as the Catechism says, even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. This isn't the last time that our Heidelberg Catechism will address the subject of good works. In fact, in Lord's Day 33, in question 91, it will tell us what what good works are, that those are done out of true faith and conformity to God's law and done for His 
glory. All of our best works. The greatest thing we've ever done in this life for God or for someone else are stained with sin. Because the standard of good works that is acceptable before God are perfect. Only perfect works are acceptable to God. The catechism goes on because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. That of His people, if a work is going to come before Him and be accepted, it must be perfect because He is perfect. His justice is perfect. God made you and He made me perfect in Adam. And so Jesus even summarizes this in Matthew 22 when He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus isn't loosening the demands of the law. He's not cutting away 616 other laws and saying you can just focus on two. He's saying every moment of every day you need to love God more than you love yourself. And every moment of every day you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says good works can't save us. Because the fact of the matter is, we're not perfect. Our natural condition is sinful. We can't save ourselves. Now the temptation of the Christian is to say, well, maybe my works can't contribute wholly to my righteousness, but maybe I can contribute a little bit to my righteousness. Maybe I can put at least one stitch in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. But you'll notice in question 62 that our catechism is really asking two questions, isn't it? Why can't our good works first, this is the first question, be our righteousness before God? Paul's answered that in Ephesians 2. But the second question, why can't our good works be part of our righteousness before God. This is second question is geared more towards believers. Because Satan so often seeks to distort the Gospel by whispering questions into our ears. Yes, you trust in Christ. But maybe if you were a little more holy... Maybe if you prayed a little more. Maybe if you were more consistent in your religion and your forsaking of sin. Then God would accept you. Have you heard questions like this? He tempts us to trust in Jesus 95% of the time, but He wants 5% of it to be left up to you and me. 
trust in Jesus 99% of the time, but 1% is really up to you. No. Three times in Ephesians 2, Paul says your only hope of righteousness is that by grace you have been saved. This is why good works cannot save us. In our natural condition, we are stained with sin and therefore, there's not a single work we can do in this life that meets the divine standard. Congregation, here's a few words of application for you from this. First is so obvious, isn't it? The de- that dead men do not do good works. But what about when somebody does something that is good? The catechism is leading us to one conclusion. We have to praise God for the good things done in this world, even through people who don't believe. It is God who is at work through them. So we should rejoice when an unbeliever does our open heart surgery and be thankful for that. We should rejoice when there's beautiful art that shows God's glory even when they don't believe in Him. Because it's still the Lord, despite their sinfulness, showing us His beauty and His glory. And how wonderful is our Lord that even though we are not perfect, He still gives us rewards. Our natural human condition is dead, disobedient, and doomed. We've laid long in the grave. But Jesus says these words in John 5, The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they shall hear and they shall live. We've been alienated from God. We're born as dead men, live as dead men until Christ calls us and He raises us to spiritual new life. In verses 3 and 4, There's a great transition. We are dead. We are disobedient. We are doomed. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Ephesians 2 does not pertain or contain any commands about how you should live. Did you notice that? There's no instruction here. There's no application. It's only a description of what God has done for you in Christ. That it's by God's gracious initiative and sovereign action towards lifeless, hopeless, condemned sinners that we're saved. Salvation is holy of grace. Look at the motive of this great rescue mission. 
God is rich in mercy and great in love. Again, boys and girls, think of it like this. Say you get into big trouble at school. And you're guilty. And you know it. And the principal is going to give you a severe punishment. Or maybe your mother for you homeschoolers. But instead decides to have mercy on you. And excuse your offense. Did you earn that mercy? No, it was due to the compassion of the principle that you were excused. Paul says, so it is with salvation. It's due to the attributes in God. Due to His mercy. His love. Because of who He is, we have salvation. Second, notice the cause mentioned three times in verse 5, 7, and 8. His grace. His favor towards people who don't deserve it. Third, look at the inspiration. His kindness towards us in Christ. When you put it all together, God towards us is rich in mercy, great in love, exceeding in grace, and kind in Christ. The picture Paul gives us is of a God who saves, who makes dead sinners alive, and who makes us children of God. So that when we stand before Him, Jesus Himself will put a crown of righteousness upon your head. It says in the book of Revelation. Grace, grace, grace. It's all of grace. And the reason Paul keeps hammering the subject of grace into our heads is because he knows the human heart. We're stubborn. We want to think that somehow, some way, we can earn something from God. But He rules it out. No, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. The gift of God. Not of works. Congregation, the door of works is slammed shut. He is infinitely perfect and holy. We could do nothing that could ever satisfy His perfection except what Jesus gives to us in His grace. And I don't know about you guys. I shouldn't call you guys. I don't know about you congregation. But I find this actually very comforting. That there's nothing I can do to win God's merit or approval. But that also means that there's nothing I can do to demerit His approval and love. If you didn't earn it, it also means you can't lose it. 
By believing in Christ, we receive a gift that is not dependent upon our righteousness. Dependent upon our works. Or if you're having a bad day or a bad year, it's secure in Him. And it also ought to humble us. That God saved you not because you are kind, not because you work hard, not because you honor the commandments. God saved you because He loved you. Well, maybe you say, Pastor, salvation surely is of grace, but rewards are not of grace. Didn't we read in Genesis 15 this morning that God rewards those? Or that God rewarded Abraham, excuse me. Or in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that God rewards those who seek Him. Or Psalm 19.11, in keeping the commandments, our great reward. What the Catechism is mentioning in question 63, I think is right. That it's a gift of grace. That what we reward, as, or what God gives us as a reward, is only given to us because we are in Jesus Christ. We are grafted into the vine, plugged into His righteousness, so God graciously rewards us. I think the best illustration of the rewards we're given in Jesus is in Revelation chapter 4 when we're told that there are elders, 24 elders, who surround the throne of God, and we're told in verse 10 that Christ comes and places a crown of righteousness on their heads. But what do they do with the crown? It says they take it off and they throw it at the feet of Jesus. Because they didn't earn it. But they're still clothed in royal garments given a crown of righteousness because of His grace. Therefore, congregation, good works do not merit or justify us, but they are just another evidence of His marvelous grace. So the common question amongst Christians then, and we've all thought it, as if my righteousness is wholly based on the work of Christ. And nothing I have done, and nothing I am doing, and nothing I will do will ever change God's opinion of me. Why do good works matter at all? What's the point of putting to death the old man? Why worry about vanity and pride? Why kick the pornography habit? Why decline extra drinks at a party? What's the point of striving to be sanctified in this life? Well, Paul says, yes, it is true that we are not saved by good works. Notice in that last verse, verse 10, we are saved to do good works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk 
in them. I want you just to notice two words. We are His workmanship. Which calls to mind, right? A a building of something. A crafting of something. And John Calvin, I think, is right when he says, we have been formed by His hand for a purpose. When you make something, it's for a purpose. Not often do you make something just to put it on the wall. Maybe every once in a while you do. But when you're in your wood shop doing work, you're building something to do something else. God has worked Christ in us to revert our natural human condition and to put us again on a path of service to Him. Renewed us to walk in holiness. By His grace, we've been changed from useless and dead to alive and meaningful. We are God's handiwork. The objects of His new creation so that we can worship Him. So that we can serve one another. So that we can pray. So that we can do good works for Him. This is the kind of life God has given us. We could never merit His splendid love But what we can do is gratefully accept it and live lives in honor of Him. But the second word, the second point I guess I want you to notice is that we are His workmanship created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand. Congregation, you are not saved to be an ornament on God's mantle. You are not saved to be a trophy in His trophy case or a picture on His wall, but you are saved to labor in God's vineyard. And serving Him has always been your purpose in life. Paul says God has prepared these works beforehand. In the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, maybe read it this evening, Paul has been talking about how God has elected us beforehand He chose His church. So too has God beforehand when He chose you, elected you to serve Him. He has chosen you so that you will walk in good works. In a former life, we walked after the world. We walked after the flesh. We walked after the devil. Now we walk after Him. Sometimes young men and women especially will ask me, what has God called me to do in this life? Notice here the answer. You are called to serve Him. Wherever you are, wherever you go, this is your purpose. Serve God for His glory. The application here is very profound. 
Life isn't about you. Our world has this backwards. Life is supposedly about following your own happiness, your own desires, your own goals, your own satisfaction and rest. Instead, the Apostle Paul cuts right through this and says you were saved to give your life wholly and entirely to the Lord Jesus for His glory. Another thing, we are never called to rest from good works. But every day of every moment, we are called to serve Christ who has saved us. So what about good works this evening? God has made you alive in Christ to do them. Not as your right standing before Him, or so that you can earn something from Him, but so that you can glorify God through them. So do them. There are good works everywhere for us to do. There are good works in our home, good works in our church, good works in our community. There is worship that God has called us to bring. There are people to love. There are friends to help. You have all been given gifts to use to build God's kingdom on earth. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Father of all mercies, we give You thanks this evening that You have reminded us once again from Your Word that according to our human nature, we have participated in Adam's fallenness. But Lord, You've looked upon us with Your grace and You have given us a salvation so sweet, so pure, so true. Father, the least we can do is serve You all the days of our lives to Your glory and to the honor of Your name. Teach us, Lord, that good works do not justify us, but good works do vindicate the work that You have done in our hearts. So stir us up, Lord, to serve one another in this church. Stir stir us up to serve our families and our friends and our community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.